0: When I was a young college student, there was one Jewish book that everyone had on their shelves, and I'm not referring to the Hebrew Bible. That book was the Jewish Catalog, edited by Michael Strassfeld, Sharon Strassfeld, and the late Richard Siegel, who we still miss very much. The Jewish Catalog was sort of like a a Jewish version of, and here I'm really dating myself, it was like the Whole Earth Catalog. It was a volume on how you could create your own Jewish life and how you could craft a Jewish life for the community that you wanted to be in. Ultimately, the Jewish catalog would consist of three volumes. It was published by the Jewish Publication Society, with the exception of their Hebrew scriptures. I think it's still their best-selling book, and it had essays and do-it-yourself guides by all of the major and some of the minor figures of the Jewish counterculture of the time, many of whom have died, but their influence lives on profoundly. It's not only that the Jewish catalog was one of the best-selling, if not the second best-selling book for the Jewish Publication Society. It was was a phenomenon. It went on to be one of the best-selling books in American Jewish publishing history. I don't think anything came close until Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote his classic When Bad Things Happen to Good People this is about good things happening to good people, or this is about good things happening to a great people. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred, and I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. Our guest today is Rabbi Michael Strassfeld. He was one of the original editors of the Jewish Catalog, as I have just said, and he went on to write several other books on Judaism, spirituality, and finding meaning in this complex tradition. And I should also say he's been one of my major influences. I should say as a point of personal pride that the review that I wrote in 1973 for the first Jewish catalog was my first published article when I was a freshman in college. And so Rabbi Strasfeld has a new book, and it's really explosive, and you need to read it. It's called Judaism Disrupted, A Spiritual Manifesto for the 21st Century. Michael Strassfeld is one of the heroes of modern American Judaism. And Rabbi Strassfeld, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be talking with you.
0: So let's talk about your childhood. Um, I don't want to put you on the couch, but tell us how you were raised, your parents, what that was
1: about. I, I grew up in a modern Orthodox home in, uh, I was actually born in Saratoga Springs, upstate New York. But a few years later, we moved to Boston. And that's where where I grew up. And as I said, it was a modern Orthodox home. My father was a rabbi of an Orthodox congregation. And I attended Maimonides school, the Jewish day school in the in the Boston area. And actually, I feel very much indebted to the education that I I, I got there it was a very solid foundation in, in Judaism. And that's really enriched my, my life. And I think clearly enriched the, the books that I've written years later.
0: So I want to talk about the Chavara movement. You were one of the pioneers. This is a major data point in modern American Jewish history. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about Chavarat Shalom. Can we talk about what the Jewish counterculture was?
1: To put it in in its setting, it it really arose in in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, when there was a lot happening in America, and there was such a thing as the general counterculture, which was involved in opposing the Vietnam War and all sorts of style things and things about sexuality. and it was a really a turning point in American life and society. And the Jewish counterculture was both reflection and in some ways different from from the general counterculture. but it was in that it was deeply influenced by it and the sense of we really wanted to change the way things have been or the the way, we thought at least, things I had in the Jewish community. And one of the basic themes of that was really a notion that you, people needed to do to do Judaism themselves, not rely on Jewish professionals, rabbis and others, but really take it upon themselves and not have a, a very kind of fat, passive form of Judaism, which I think was the experience of many people in in synagogues of the time. So that was, in some ways, a starting point to what the Jewish counterculture was about.
0: I remember years ago in commentary, a uh, critic referred to this whole movement as the greening of American Judaism. Uh, what you did was uh, of spectacular importance. I, I want to talk about your Rebbe's. I want to talk about your teachers, besides your parents. And I knew your father of blessed memory and had profound respect for him, as did everybody in the Boston area across the Across the board, you got to know that. But who were your teachers? Who who influenced you?
1: Well, I, initially, I, I think the, the teachers at Maimonides, the day school I went to, were, as I said, I got a, a deep Jewish education. But I think after that, there were, one person was Art Green, who uh, went on to be you know, a leading scholar of, of, of Hasidism, of Jewish mysticism, and was one of the founders of Chavarat Shalom, one of these groups that we're talking about, these intentional communities. I met him first that he was uh, doing graduate work at Brandeis, and I was an undergraduate at Brandeis, and he taught a, a course on Hasidism. I probably should say a word about Hasidism. Hasidism is defined as a Jewish mystical and pietistic movement that began in the the 18th century in Eastern Europe and quickly spread to be be a popular, perhaps the majority of Eastern European Jews, but even if not a majority, many, many Eastern European Jews uh, joined Hasidism. And it had a powerful influence at that time. And it also had an influence through through uh, Art Green and another figure, Zalman Shekhtar Shalomi, uh, very much on the Jewish counterculture that uh, looked to Hasidism as a source for Jewish spirituality.
0: You know, it's interesting to me about the Hasidism thing, and I've done my own studies of it, and I'm, like you, a devotee of Art Green, and we miss Reb Zalman of blessed memory. Most people now have a perception of hasidism or let me say it this way contemporary hasidim with the exception of chabad which is a different thing as being totally divorced from the world backwards obscurantist medievalist what happened to hasidism that took it away from the religious movement that influenced you and art green so much How, how did it become so conservative where once upon a time it was so radical.
1: Right, and I hope we'll get to talk a little bit about the, some of the radical notions in early Let's Hasidism. do it. Let's do it. Oh, do that? Okay. Yeah, come so on. What I, I think is interesting about Hasidism and why it had a, an influence on the Jewish counterculture, and I think today, more broadly, it's having a, an influence on, on Jewish life, uh, as I said, more broadly. For, but just to make a point, at Maimonides, the day school I went to, which had a different curriculum than many day schools, in that it was had a broad interest in Jewish topics, not just Talmud, which was the traditional curriculum. We didn't study any Hasidic texts. There, there was, wasn't part of what the expanded version of Judaism that was at the time. Um, and it's only later that I think it's become... Broadly, a part of the Jewish world, even in the Orthodox world, and uh, one of the ideas that uh, a number of the ideas were radical religiously in terms of us that the average person could have a deep relationship with God. That relationship could be mediated by the Rebbe or the tzaddik, the you know the whole the holy man. Let's call him, and they were all men that you know, clearly had a, a very uh, spiritual presence and spiritual teaching. and um, But that anyone in this relationship of a master student of Rebbe to uh, Hasid had that potential. And in some ways that was different. That was a shift in Eastern European Jewry where basically the pre-Hasidism the emphasis was on actually the yeshiva, the, the the equivalent of the day school that I went to, um, where people studied Talmud. But the truth was that ended up being an elite group of people because it needed people, A, who had uh, intellectual ability, but more importantly, who could afford to go to a day school, not because they were expensive, but because they weren't working to, to earn a living. And there was a way that one could look at Judaism at that time and say that many Jews were in some ways excluded from the center of religious life. And because they didn't have the background, they they, they couldn't get the background. Um, and so Hasidism was different because it desired to be a mass movement. And that about it made it different than previous Jewish mysticism, there has been a strand of Jewish mysticism throughout Jewish history. But the earlier Jewish mystics were uh, even more an elite, small group of people, and the teachings were thought not appropriate or uh, to bring to the masses, that uh, people could uh, misunderstand uh, the mysticism, which was complex and and was challenging.
0: Fascinating. So, in other words, what Hasidism did in its earliest iteration was, number one, attempted to demolish the elitism, which was both educational and socioeconomic within the Jewish community. And number two, it was a popularization of mystical ideas.
1: Right. And and one of the things that they expressed and became, I think, one of the things that Hasidism, and this is true even today, is associated with, with is a sense of joy of of celebration of sing, singing nigunim wordless melodies of of even sitting around a table and and eating and listening to the Rebbe teach and the sense of it as being joyous about judaism rather than you know somber and sober
0: now i'm going to circle back to the title of your new book which is Judaism disrupted. We've just established that Hasidism, well, it wasn't the first, but it was probably the most prominent movement in Jewish life, certainly in European Jewish life, that disrupted Judaism. I want to dial this back 50 years. My God, it's a half century. Can you believe, (laughs) Rabbi, can you believe it's been a half century since the Jewish catalog? No. (laughs) I mean, I look at the old pictures of you on the back cover. You really haven't aged much, but American Judaism has. What has changed, and how would you describe this period of American Judaism in which we find ourselves today?
1: Challenging. That's how I would describe it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) So so I think that, in a way, what the, the Jewish catalog, which came out of the Jewish counterculture, and as you said, I was very involved in, what we were trying to do is, present Judaism, A, in a joyous manner, B, uh, in a contemporary-looking fashion, and C, to give people the information and tools to live a Jewish life. And I, I kind of mentioned this, a sense of Judaism has to be really lived. And the subtitle of the first catalog was A Do-It-Yourself Kid. And in some ways, the, the Jewish catalog, you know, was modeled on the whole earth catalog, a book of the time. But we realized, unlike that, which just referred you to a book to tell you if you want to build a geodesic dome, which some people wanted to do in those days, go buy this book by Buckminster Fuller. But we couldn't do that Jewishly because if we said, oh, how do you build a sukkah, the booth for the holiday, the fall holiday of Sukkot? We refer them to the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, which was in Hebrew, making it inaccessible for most people. And it's a work of laws. It doesn't actually say, take two by fours, get cinder blocks, right? It's not a practical guide. So we wanted to bring those things together and give people the tools to live a Jewish life. And it was a catalog. It was, you could take from this what you wanted, the things you were interested in, and create your Jewish life. Now, I think the challenge is that information is available, and now with the Internet, it's, you know, it's really readily available. There's not much need for the Jewish catalog. But I think the challenge is, why bother? Like, why be Jewish?:
0: Right. So the Jewish catalog was this is really, really important. The Jewish catalog answered the question, "How?" Right now, the question that lies before us, Rabbi, is
1: why? That's, and I think we live in very disruptive times, though this disruption has been going on for a while. I'm not just talking about COVID or or the last political situation, but in some ways, the, the challenge of the modern world, which Judaism has been responding to for a number of centuries, is still unfolding and I I think this is a challenging period
0: we're going to come right back because I want to talk about the challenges of this period, I want to talk about Judaism disrupted, I also want to figure out there's a playfulness in the title of that book It's is Judaism disrupted uh, in other words, past participle or has Judaism disrupted as an active verb I don't know if that was your intent but I'm a language guy, I'm a grammar nerd
2: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief.
1: I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was gonna have to be somebody like me.
2: Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. And we are
0: back with Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach. With us is Rabbi Michael Strassfeld. I have to say, Rabbi, when I look at the, the second part of the title of this podcast, you are someone who has been shaking and stirring the pot of American Judaism for quite some time. Judaism Disrupted, the new book. You're calling for a new Judaism. What's it going to look like?
1: Well, I think it's going to look different than the Judaism that exists and the rabbinic Judaism, which is the basic form of Judaism you know, for the last 2,000 years.
0: Talk about that model, because that was, to me, the most interesting, compelling, and personally challenging piece of your book, the model of rabbinic Judaism, the dualities—can
1: you can you help us with that? So I think that's the issue of of dualities is a cr- critical challenge or problem we might say in rabbinic Judaism, and and then it really categorizes many things uh, and into categories of pure, impure, holy, common, but others. Dividing men from women, Jews from people who aren't Jewish. And uh, ultimately, I th- I think that those kind of divisions too frequently lead to hierarchy. That is, it isn't just there are chairs and tables, but it's, that's two different categories. And it's useful to have that description of things, but that it ends up that men have more status in in traditional Judaism than do women, and et cetera, et cetera, with all those categorizations uh, led to hierarchy and who's in and who's out. And I think part of the world we live in is a world that's striving to be ever more inclusive. We want to include as many people as possible, not create categories that say these people are out or these people are you know have a priority and the other people are secondary and that's the challenge is that it a, underlies a lot of rabbinic Judaism it isn't just one little piece of which we could either ignore or just change as we have changed in the in the liberal Jewish world as we have changed other things including related to to this specifically in the sense that you know liberal <coughs> Judaism has now made women equal, egalitarian to men, you know, rejecting the the hierarchy that is within traditional rabbinic Judaism.
0: So I'm okay, in fact, I endorse, you'd be surprised if I said anything different, in demolishing the hierarchical distinctions here. And I am more than okay with dis- disengaging from this whole idea that men are better than women. But what do we do about the whole notion of Havdalah? For example, Shabbat, the distinction between Shabbat and the days of the week. Is it possible to maintain any kind of religious system that cares about the sacred without duality? In other words, something doesn't have to be worse than something else. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that the days of the week are worse than Shabbat, but they are uh, they are quintessentially, ontologically different. Can we create a Judaism that will survive without that?
1: I really think so. I think that the example you use is, is perfect. Um, holy is something to, to strive for, to try and increase in the world. Goodness is something, again, to strive for or to increase in the world. So I, I do think there's a difference still between good and bad, um, between holy and the common, but that's, particularly good and bad, that's based on values. It isn't, you know, some arbitrary distinction that we could have decided women were more important than men, but that's assigned categories. Judaism does think that doing good, God says at the end of each day of creation, "Kitov," it was good, right? That's to make things good is a value. And I would say holiness is another important value that expresses that there is something beyond that which is tangible, that which is ordinary. But the idea, as as you suggested, is the ideal isn't to live your whole life in Shabbat, that you should have Shabbat seven days a week. And if, you know, if things were better, that's what we would do. No, it is to live your life, which involves the six days of creation, that's another responsibility or uh, value of Judaism, which is to continue to co-create the world with God. And so we're supposed to do that. We're not supposed to just sit home and, you know, whatever, eat, eat, chicken Friday night and and eat it every night. And you know, in some ways it obviously the contrast between having a time that's Shabbat and having a time that's weekday helps create the specialness of Shabbat. You can't live all the time in the extraordinary. Uh, the challenge is living in the in the ordinary moments. I would say that's one of the um teachings of Hasidism that I think is really important uh in 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 the book and in my life that there is holiness in the everyday not just in the extraordinary not just in doing what i call the jewishly jewish things that is things that only jews do whether it's keeping kosher or observing shabbat um, but to find holiness in the world and in everyday interactions
0: i am intrigued by this idea of the holiness of the everyday by the way i know that in hasidism this is the idea of Abu Dasheba Gashmi you know, the worship that we do through our physicality. And I wrote about that a number of years ago in a book on the world of work and, and Jewish spirituality. How do you find the holiness stuff in the everyday?
1: By the way, I must say that in that book, there was the wonderful story you told about the mover who saw this as really spiritual, religious work to make people's moves you know, go easily because he knows that it's a hard, hard day. And I thought that was a perfect example.
0: It was an example of everyday people. That's a quote, Sly in the Family Stone, who have this imbibing sense of mission. And this was a guy who was just cheerful. I said, why are you so happy? And he said, well, well, Rabbi, I got to tell you something. Right now you're entrusting all your possessions to me. And people in my crew who, by the way, just got out of prison, you want to know the truth, and I just figure if I can get your stuff to where you got to go, and I know this is stressful for you and your family, then that's what God wants me to do. I just I love that. All right, so, so that, but enough about me.
1: But that's a perfect example, right? It isn't that he was honest; he broke something and he told you rather than hiding it, right? Which, when you think about, oh, what's what's Jewish Jewish law is right. So, but this is just the interactions of everyday. So it could be how you respond in a conversation. It could be you see someone struggling at at a door with a package and you, you go up and help them. It's understanding that all of life has that potential. It's not just the religious things. Everything, in that sense, is religious. Everything is spiritual. Everything is holy. And underlying that notion for Hasidism, which was different than most previous Jewish mysticism, which most mystical movements, Jewish and non-Jewish, see the world and the material as bad things. The way to be spiritual is to be less material, right? Don't eat too much. Don't enjoy life too much often. Um, And Hasidism uh, took a different stance because theologically it said God is in everything. And in that sense, in every moment. And it led to a more positive notion about the material world. It wasn't like we have to reject the material world; we can embrace it as long as we understand that it's all in the service of the holy and the service of a sense of oneness. Again, I, th- I think without knowing the, the the mover, like he had some sense of you know this oneness between him and and the people he was helping. That change it from just a task, a job, to, um, as you say, a a mission. And mission means a sense of holiness.
0: Is Judaism being disrupted, which you're trying to do, or should Judaism be a force to disrupt us in our lives?
1: Both. (laughs) A Jewish answer, both. I I think we live in disruptive times. And the way things worked in the past, and you could see rabbinic Judaism has carried the Jewish people for 2,000 years or so. But I think it isn't the right form to carry us in the future. I'd like to say that perhaps the genius of rabbinic Judaism was that it created a Judaism that was portable, without the temple and without living in in Israel. So wherever the winds of fortune and misfortune carried the Jewish people in the last 2,000 years, that Judaism it was completely portable. You could do it wherever you were. Now, I think we need a Judaism that's permeable because we're living in, a, in an open society. We're living in a world where the internet, et cetera, et cetera, has connected us everywhere. And, and so the, the challenge is how do you create a Judaism that is in a land without boundaries and borders?
0: It's not only that it's in a land without boundaries and borders. You said something really amazing a few minutes ago, which I want to underscore. The revolution of rabbinic Judaism was to remove Judaism by necessity, historical necessity, from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to move it into the synagogues. Now, I'm thinking that we're in another period of Jewish history. You might want to call it the new Yavna, as it were, a new sense of beginning again after the destruction of the temple where since COVID, Judaism has become even more portable. I mean, the amazing thing is that I can now do Judaism from wherever, and it can be asynchronic. In other words, I can watch the rerun of the service. This is troubling me. I'm not sure I can lean into this the way I should. Maybe it's for younger generations of Jewish leaders to figure out. You and I are basically the same age. What do you make of this revolution?
1: I think that it's part of the challenge. And, you know, there's uh, the obvious good things that you, you know, people can, as you say, log in anywhere or go to a synagogue anywhere in the world wherever it doesn't matter where you are, but you wonder whether how much community exists in that form. And, Community, I, I think, is a critical piece of, of Jewish life. It isn't about, Judaism isn't about like, I should reach nirvana and who cares about the rest of the people. It's Judaism has lived in, in community. So I think, it's, I think it's a challenge. But I also think that like the moment, you know, it's an interesting, unknowable question. What would have happened if the temple had never been destroyed?
0: I wonder about that all the time.
1: You know, would the rabbis have said, you know what, we appreciate all the everything you've done. We're now going to be the religious authorities and we're not going bringing sacrifices. We're going to have synagogues and we're going to have rabbis. And, and we don't know, and we'll never know. But I, I think we're at something of a moment like that now. And we'll only know long after we're all dead. But I... In the book, I have a chapter that talks about how I think that synagogue services as they're done today don't work for many, many people.
0: All right, we're going to come back to that after a brief break how synagogue services don't work, and I'm going to have to ask you how they could work. We'll be right back.
2: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations celebrating our diversity and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet, distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
0: We're back with Rabbi Michael Strassfeld. Okay, we ended on a great note, and right now I can feel the collective blood pressure of my colleagues is going through the roof. Synagogue services don't work. Why don't they work? How could they work?
1: So I, I think it's there's a variety of challenges that even you know rabbis who are committed to the services understand, which is you know, they're in Hebrew, the God language. I think if you ask people, what is prayer? Most people would say it's asking God for things. And I think most people don't actually believe that God will say yes, even if it's only sometimes, whatever they believe about God. I mean, so there's all those. And I would say it's one of the few things that's so long anymore. You know, two hours, three hours services are just too long in a, time where the internet is is it's no longer miles per hour it's the internet speeds that that set our sense of time but i i think the the actually the biggest problem is that for most people what's in the prayer book feels completely disconnected from anything that they care about you know i like to say if you took all the the prayer book it took all the pages and threw them up in the air then put them together, scoop them up, and set them in that order. For most people, go to synagogue regularly. I'm talking about liberal synagogues mostly. It would have as much sense. And I think that's the problem, and that's the problem of why, or why bother? I don't think today people are embarrassed about their Judaism or they feel – I think it just feels like, you know, I like the Passover Seder, so – I'm gonna gonna do that, you know. I I like it, it's family or it's I just like it, whatever. But all this other stuff, all particularly what it's seen as ritual, is you know, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense.
0: Can you resketch a synagogue worship service for us in a non-orthodox context? Because this is this is fascinating me. What what would be part of it?
1: Let me give you first an ex- example of a service that was very important in getting me clarity about how to do this. Uh, I started doing a healing service with Debbie Friedman, of blessed memory, an important uh, musician in the Jewish community who died too young. And we did these healing services once a month for, for a number of years. And since there is no such thing as a traditional healing service, we just created it. And it was a mixture of her music and Hasidic melodies and readings and it was not focused on sickness per se it was focused on themes like brokenness and wholeness darkness and light and what was clear to me was that everybody there knew why they were at that service they either were sick themselves or were deeply connected to people who were sick or they felt in a spiritual level a sense of brokenness and nothing in that service, whether it was little lines of Hebrew we were singing or the readings, or if I said a word or something, no one said, I, I don't know why I was saying that. I don't understand how that's connected to anything that I care about. It was all like connected. It was just clear. I get it. And I think that's the opposite of the experience. So the answer to a question of how, what, as, because I do believe there still should be communal spiritual experiences. I don't think everybody should just go home and do something by themselves. I think there's a total value to that. I think it has to be a service that's constructed around theme, a spiritual theme defined broadly, which uses pieces of the liturgy, which uses music, music that people <coughs> can sing, maybe some music that people can listen to, some teaching about that theme. And I think it could be shorter. Um, and I think then there's a possibility that people will say, I get it. I get what's happening here. And I find it uh, spiritual satisfying or sp- or important that I sit for an hour and a half on Saturday morning and have a time to explore my spiritual life. And it's, you know, one of the few places in the world that uh, you, you can't get a cell phone call, right? So um, it, it's a, it's an opportunity. Uh, and I, 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 mean, I have actually, for the last, since retiring, I've been doing a high holiday service along those lines. And, you know, and it's not for everybody because certainly people will say, wait, we didn't do this. We didn't do that from the traditional liturgy. There's pieces of the traditional liturgy, but... But it's focused on the the theme of tshuva, of change, of repentance, of compassion to yourself and to other people. And I think it's it will be a challenge to move from the existing model to a different model. And every congregational rabbi knows that. And I don't underestimate that challenge. But I think... It's one important example, uh, along perhaps with the the dualities and the hierarchy, about the past that isn't going to be, I don't think is going to work in the future.
0: This has been an amazing piece of this conversation. All right, so I want to end on the following note. Not really end, it's like an almost end. I've read Judaism Disrupted. I agree with much of it. Much of it challenges me, and I'm not there with some of it, but what else is new? Let me ask you a really hard question, and it's a basic question. We live in an open society. It's become even more open. We live in a society of diversity. Can Judaism really survive in this open society? Can Judaism survive success in America?
1: I think that is the challenge, but I want to say I think that's also the opportunity of this moment. So I never really talked about how Judaism disrupts judaism disrupts our lives i think that's that's an important piece of what judaism is about and and more broadly what religion is about
0: so how does judaism disrupt our lives this is a very big deal for me one of the things i pulled from you early on even before i met you and i'm writing about this in my writings is that judaism itself is a counterculture and we have to recapture the countercultural phenomenon that is judaism which by the way in your way of thinking, it might turn out to be totally retro, but be that as it may, how should Judaism, how can Judaism disrupt our lives? How can it make our lives better and different?
1: I think the simple, in quotes, answer is that Judaism is about bringing awareness to our lives. And that will, seri- if we do that, that will seriously disrupt them. And then we will strive to Cultivate uh, inner qualities like generosity and open heartedness. We will look to express gratitude as a great spiritual place to live rather than in meanness and and anger. And I think we will take seriously the challenges of the tradition in terms of caring about. I mean, the most quoted mitzvah commandment is you have to treat the stranger because you were strangers in the land of egypt and i i think that's an example of not a it's of a a new form of mitzvah a new form of commandment which it doesn't have a specific thing to do you know it doesn't say do x y and z and then you'll fulfill this commandment it's an attitude to be cultivated it is how you're supposed to go to the through the world, and when you come across this issue, which happens often, sometimes when you're walking down the street and someone's asked you for money, other times when you're listening to, to you know horrible news in the paper of, of an earthquake, et cetera, et cetera, a million things. When you worry that whether there's going to be a planet, it's to, to say, I have to take those things, and it's incumbent upon me to think about those in need and how, how I could possibly help them. And obviously, I can't make this all okay. But I have to engage in that process. And I think, ultimately, what Judaism is about is taking the most precious gift that we have, which is our lives, and live them with meaning and commitment to something larger than ourselves.
0: I so agree with you. This has been so challenging, so important to me. And and on a personal level you've been a, a hero of mine for my entire adult jewish life and so it's a privilege to spend this kind of time with you and the book again is judaism disrupted a spiritual manifesto for the 21st century published by ben yehuda press you can find it on amazon uh the book is out yes Rabbi? yes the book's out. fantastic i just want to say that it's been a pleasure uh, and I am grateful to our friend, Rabbi Michael Strasfeld, And this has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin, once again, of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. This has been Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, the podcast. And thanks for being with us, Rabbi Strasfeld. Thanks, Michael.
1: Well, thank you very much. This was really enjoyable. To be continued, what can I say?
0: Amen. I think we're going to have to have you back. There's just too much for us to talk about. And friends, I invite you to follow my regular column, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Lance Roger Axt. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Shalom, everyone. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.